0: We acknowledge the original owners of the land on which we podcast, whose stories were told for thousands of years. Today we are recording in Meandjen. We pay our respects to elders past and present who may be listening. Sovereignty was never ceded. A quick note before we get started that. There may be some swearing in today's podcast. If you don't like swearing or usually listen with children in the car, you have been warned. You're listening to What in the NDIS Now, a podcast where I, Hannah Redford and my friend Sam Rosenbaum interview participants and providers about all things NDIS. So welcome to today's episode. I'm really excited to talk to our guest today who is Sulette. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Morning Hannah. Thank you so much for having me. It's super excited to be part of this.
0: Well, thank you for agreeing to come on. You're welcome. It's so it's so exciting to talk to you. So um The first question we usually start off with is, where did you grow up?
1: So I was born in a town called Vereeniging many, many moons ago in South Africa. It's a town that's 90 kilometers south of Johannesburg. And I spent all my childhood there. I was born in one place. I went to primary school in one place and high school in one place. And then um, finished my school years there as well. Um, After school, um, I decided to travel. I wasn't sure what I wanted to study. And um, I went and lived in Israel for 18 months. My mother is from Jewish descent. So I went and checked out the place where my grandmother grew up and um, where family lives. And from there on, I traveled to the UK. I lived in London for two years where I met my husband. My mom always said that I have, uh, I'm suffering from Wanderlust, which means I love to travel and go and see new places. So yes, after I met him, returned to South Africa and then started my studies in um, information technology. Um, It was around about the year 2000 where everybody thought you need to be Y2K compliant and need to know what's happening in the world of um, information technology. So um, started um, studying in that space and then just progressed my career through IT and then ended up in finance just prior to immigrating to Australia in 2016.
0: Oh wow, that's... That's a really interesting story. So um, I think you had said that English isn't your first language. So what what was your first
1: language? My first language is Afrikaans. So it's um, similar to Dutch. I don't speak Dutch, but I can understand it when somebody speaks in Dutch to me. So, um, yes, we speak it at home and I normally after four or five in the afternoon, my English disappears. So then my kids start making fun of me for translating directly from Afrikaans to English if I speak to somebody in English. But that's my that's my mother tongue and English is not. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
0: uh, so when did you learn English?
1: Um, It's part of the compulsory languages in school. So you start learning it from age seven. In South Africa, you start going to school slightly later than you normally do. in in Australia but um, English and Afrikaans are two primary languages and then you could obviously choose a a third language if you like so I pretty much grew up with it and my father was always um, a big advocate for us to be able to be fluent in a second language so he just bought English newspapers and um, he would we would sit at the dinner table and he'll speak English to us so yeah but pretty much since I can remember I was taught English and um but don't let that fool you. I lose my words very often and sometimes my kids talk about stuff that I'm oh, I've never heard that word before. So I'm still learning.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I still learn new words myself. So that, that's a lifelong pursuit. Exactly. The English language exactly. is bizarre. <laughs> oh, awesome. Thank you. So the next question is what brought you into the disability sector?
1: Um, We immigrated in 2016 as a family moved countries, came to Sydney, and um, coming from a financial and an IT background, um, I made the conscious decision not to do anything for the first six months, given that... um, I wanted to settle the kids and getting all my reaccreditations to become a financial planner in Australia was quite lengthy and tedious. Um, and I decided, no, nah, I'm just going to take six months, make sure the kids are OK. My husband travelled quite a bit, so I was pretty much a single mom during that time. I... As you do, you know, in a new country without any support system or any family or friends, I I pretty much just clean my house every day to make sure that everything is spick and span. Um, And one day I got a lady to come and clean my carpets on my stairs, which is cream carpets on stairs. Do not ask me why people put cream cream carpets on (laughs) stairs, but it was there and I had this immense urge to get it clean. So this lovely lady came to my house and she cleaned my stairs. And um, we started talking about, so what is it you do? And she was a support worker. She was working for um, an organisation and um, interestingly enough, prior to us emigrating to Australia um, at the financial pra- um, planning practice that I was part of, we would do like reach out every month to um, a respite facility called Shalom. Now, there is no federal funding in South Africa like the NDIS. Um, you're pretty much on your own. It's the goodness of people's hearts and volunteers. So we would go once a month and just go and do something nice. We would go and clean up the gardens. We would put new fresh linen, curtains, paint, have Christmas parties. That was my involvement with disability. So when we moved to Australia and I met this lovely lady and we started talking about it, I was like, hmm, this, I've, I've always loved helping people. And it's always something that um, I felt very passionate about and making sure that there's an advocate for, for somebody who can't advocate for themselves. So um. Long story short, she told me what she was doing and she's like, um, if you're ever interested, just just let us know. At that stage, my son only had two days at kindy. I couldn't get any more days. They were full. Not being your traditional housewife, I actually started thinking of hmm, this may be something that I could do while he's at school. And um, I got a call the following week from a lady at the organization. I'm still friends with her beautiful soul. And she started chatting to me about this. And I'm like, OK, I'll let you know. Two weeks passed and... I was mauling over the idea because it was, you know, she explained to me what the role entails and what it would mean to be a support worker, a good support worker, and I called her back and the rest is history. So that was in 2016 and yeah, um, I am still doing what I love. I do think that it's my passion in life and um, just trying to to make sure that we deliver good support to to the people that, that we work for.
0: And so then... You've recently started your own company. I have. So tell me all about that.
1: I have for a very long time toyed with the idea to start my own organisation um, I coming from a large organization that did incredible things for people with disability and provided me with a lot of opportunities to grow in this space I've always had this desire to to start something that where I have the autonomy to 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 do stuff that I think is really important for people um, with disability to support them and um yes um at the end of June I launched uh, Pebble Community Support Services and um That's pretty much how it started. It's been an interesting, interesting gig thus far. Uh, It's always easier when somebody else does the work for you, right? So when you've (laughs) got to do it, it kind of takes the flaps of your eyes, learning every single day, but super exciting and and looking forward to see where and what we can do in this space.
0: Yeah, I love that. So your passion is also some employment for people with disabilities? Yes,
1: yes. I am a huge, huge advocate for um, helping people um, with with an NDIS plan who are able and willing to find employment, whether it's in the open or in the supported market, employment market. I think there's such an opportunity to to assist, um, especially young people. I think it's important to, um, there's a saying in Afrikaans that basically says, you know, you bend the tree while it's young to ensure that you install the values and the habits in a person when they are young. And that would go with them through their life to to be, to be come to fruition and achieve the things that they want to achieve. And I I agree with that. I feel that if, especially school leavers, there are so many young people out there who have the ability and the desire and are able to, to fulfill a job um, in an open market that, that that doesn't have the right support in place to kind of get them there. So um, I think that if you could help somebody to um, obtain employment sooner rather than later, that they can grow into that space better for everybody. They become independent. They take up their rightful place in society. They feel like they're contributing to society as well. And um, it's just all around positive. So um, I would love to see more young people instead of hanging around in parks or going to the bowling alley to actively work towards a goal which should be I think employment because it's it's available with the right support. Yeah
0: yeah, I completely agree. Employment is really important and and that anyone can do it with the right support.
1: 100%.
0: It's just figuring out what that correct support looks, what the support looks like to be able to support that. I I love what you said about not going bowling because it's one of Karen's (laughs) Karen Lorenzon's most hated thing (laughs) is that all the time you see a person with a
1: disability, oh, we must go bowling. (laughs) Right, or barbecue in the park. Yes. I mean, all fun, happy days. There should always be a fun element in your support, right? Right. But um, the purpose of the NDIS and your funding is to work towards a goal, to work towards outcomes. And... Some people may disagree with me, but I'm not of the opinion that um, going – its having those as part of your support structure is great, but that should be to a minimum – The rest of the stuff should really be – and you can make it fun. You can have a structured support program and working towards a goal in a fun way if you're using a little initiative and thinking outside the box. But, yes, um, there's a couple of things that I – and with Pebble, that's one of the things with the support workers. um, We have lengthy conversations about possibilities, what can be done, how can we fill those support hours with with, um, purposeful activities um, prior to just going out – to the bowling alley or to a park to make sure that at the end of the day you can stand back and you know while you had fun and while it was a great day you could write a progress note that is actually meaningful and not just today we did x y and z and johnny ate his lunch and there was no behaviors of concern it's that those are all good things but what did we do to to work towards their goals and that's the question. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, I think that it takes support workers understanding, not just their NDIS goals, but sometimes there are like side quests <laughs> that people have. Yes. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's awesome. And you have, a an STA house.
1: That's right. It's um, Tell me about that. So we've got a little property in, and I'm saying little because it is more of a cottage than your standard short-term accommodation house that accommodates four to five people. It's a two-bedroom house. Um, it's Four hundred meters from the water, it is such a lovely relaxing space you five minutes and you're at the water, these beautiful coffee shops and stuff and it's a it's a nice little space for somebody to go and unwind um, support on a one on one ratio um, where they could go with their support work and really enjoy the activities in and around the Redcliffe Peninsula area and even up to the sunshine coast so um yeah, I'm I'm super proud of it. I think it's recently been renovated. Um it'll be available at the end of September. So um I'm um, hopefully it could mean something to somebody going there just looking for a break um without having a break in a house with other people. And yeah, fulfilling that 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 respite need for both a participant and or their caregiver. Very exciting times and um we, we should be sharing some really hopefully nice pics with you guys soon.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to see those photos.
1: (laughs) Yep. It's coming. (laughs) Watch the space. (laughs) Yes. Awesome. How did you go
0: with organising things like policies and procedures?
1: Wow, that's an interesting – I spent a question. I've spent um, quite some time at my previous organisation updating our policies and procedures to be compliant in the space and to ensure that the support workers have uh, a reference in terms of what support should look like in a multitude of spaces within the support offering that we offered. And within Pebble, um, I pretty much did the same thing. Um, I think the important thing with any policy and procedure is that it's not just palatable but easily understandable. Um, The... The biggest thing you can do to deter somebody from wanting to follow suit in terms of what the right things are to do is to hand them some, something filled with um, a lot of high English words, a lengthy document that is takes forever to read. They're not going to digest that. They're not going to understand that, which means they won't be able to implement that. So whenever I do write any policies um, as well as procedures, um, I'm a very visual person. So with a procedure, I like to include um, swim lanes and pictures where people can actually follow the procedure to see this is the beginning, this is the end. And then they tend to understand it better than just writing a piece of literature um, for them to read and hopefully implement. Um, The same with a policy. It doesn't have to be intricate, difficult to be good. Um, simple is while this industry more is always better um, making it easy for people to read and to understand um, I think you run, you're not running the risk of them just making it a tick and flick exercise and not really implementing it because then you are deceiving the purpose of the whole exercise so yes it's not always fun and I don't sometimes think I'm particularly good at it but I always try and write a policy that I could possibly hand to my daughter who's 16 and she'd be able to read it and get, tell me what, what, what it says um, so that it's it's just a bit of a safeguard around making sure people will actually remember some of it and try and implement it than just say, yep, happy days, I've signed that, I've read that and now I'm going and supporting somebody but they do not have a clue and they do not remember anything. It's a very important part of any organization's, I think, um, foundation is to have the, the right policies and procedures in place to guide your staff and obviously it is it's living documents that change regularly to keep up with any changes in the agency um, or in your organization so i think making it simple and easily digestible is key for people to really understand and implement it in their day to day that's
0: awesome i completely agree i've worked for organizations that have policies and procedures that uh meaningless to yep. to me, you know, and I can read fairly dense things and ordinarily digest them okay, but even even me, I can I look through these policies and procedures of of some of the big organisations and go, no, I have no idea. Exactly, it, it is a tick and flick exercise. It is a tick and flick and, exercise, and
1: that that makes it meaningless like you said. Uh, I completely agree with you. A hundred percent and I think um to an extent I almost feel like that flows through to and I maybe become very unpopular by saying this but with the agency registration as well. I've spoken to organisations that can assist with that but the question, in my mind, sits with how much of what you submit for your registration, phase one and phase two audit the the person who's who's applying for registration actually understands and how many of these staff actually understands it where look, it's good to be registered. and I do think moving forward in the future, people would definitely follow that that path. but if if it's not, if it's a tick and flick, we're wasting everyone's time right. and we're deceiving the purpose of the exercise. It needs to be something that that people actually understand because that's why you have them.
0: Yeah, I've seen it so often where people have just purchased their policies and procedures from blah company, and then they've gotten an audit, and the audit puts them through because they have all the policies and procedures yep. there and everything yep. in the correct spot, and that's all it really is. Then the person. Pops out the other end with registration, and they go, "Oh, what do I do now?" And or they've registered for something that they don't
1: even understand. Yep, that's unfortunately true. And I think the thing with Pebble at the moment is that I am we're an unregistered provider, but um, in terms of um, HRWHS policies and procedures, all of those things are in place, and I physically had to put some work into those things to make it. Uh, fit for purpose in pebble so I think that at this stage you know I've got a pretty good understanding what those things look like and um, hopefully that'll put us in good stead when we do decide to go for registration because I think half of that stuff I'm already doing as an unregistered provider to be compliant in this space so but yeah 100% agree with what you said um and you've decided to team up with me plus more Oh, Tara, (laughs) look, again, just looking at the amazing stuff they do. I was floored when she told me that she struggles to find people to partner with in that space, organisations. It comes back to building that capacity again and, and helping people understand employment from an holistic point of view it's not about just writing a resume getting uh, going for an interview and getting a job there's a ton of stuff around that to assist you to not only get a job but to keep a job and i think the way she presents it and the the platform they have the online platform is just super smart it is fun it's purposeful it's got all the all the modules and workbooks to guide people through at their pace making it easy to understand i just I just cannot believe that not every single organisation makes use of, of, of that because it's such a great space. So with me and Tara, I've said to her, look, um, I think CELES is great, but I've not seen, if I say I haven't seen, I think that would be, that wouldn't be correct. I, I've seen some good CELES programmes and I've seen some not so good CELES programmes, but but given that you can provide core um, employment support through your core funding, you know, I think she opened up a whole new Space where you enable and equip support workers to um, where you don't necessarily need to have a vocational training. You can have your support worker facilitate that employment support through their day to day. Again, bringing some meaningful activities into their support hours, not going to the park, and that's just amazing. It guides support workers and keep and it and it kind of it um it teaches them what support should look like moving forward. Um, I, I just think there's there's just too many good things to mention. Everything. In one sentence, she's doing a phenomenal job. And I I really um, look forward to partnering with her on this because I think people doing the support with the assistance of me plus more to guide support workers to really achieve those outcomes is just super exciting. And I can't wait to see how this um, realises moving forward. But, yeah, she's doing a phenomenal job. Massive tick of approval.
0: <laughs> I'll have to get you back again to <laughs> t- tell me in in, a, in six months' time how how it's all going
1: yes yes I'm catching up with her tomorrow we've got plans
0: yes <laughs> Oh, <laughs> exciting what I love too about me plus more is that she also has the physical paper copy yes, if you need the workbooks that. yep if if it's if on screen is not your thing whatever is that that barrier she can also send you out the paper copy and exactly. I just think that's An
1: awesome offering. Yep. It's, it's, it's on at your, at your pace. Yes. Which is, and that's another thing with the whole CELES module that I kind of being in groups and stuff, that's fine. Yeah. But how do you, unless you have rolling starts, how do you ensure that everybody stays on track? Not everybody learns at the same speed or at the same, at the same pace. Yeah. Um, And that's why. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's very individualized and it allows the person to learn at a pace suitable to them and allow their support worker to support them.
0: So SLES being school leavers employment support.
1: And often it is done in a in
0: a group setting and sitting there for two hours going, This is everything you need to know and then come back next week and another two hours of just sitting there listening to someone talk. And there absolutely are a few SLES programs 100%. that are good, but there's so many I've seen just done poorly or that the participant has to fit the program rather yes. than the program being tailored for the, tailored yeah. for the participant. And that's the yep. bit yep. that makes me the most frustrated because we should never be asking the participant to fit our program.
1: I cannot agree more with you. And I think that is where I struggled with the whole group thing in CELES. Um SELES is great. I mean, but that only goes up to, what, 23? 17 to 23 being eligible for funding? I think so. So coming back to me plus more, I mean, that there's plenty of people older than 23. I mean, in their mature years that, that still can work. And I think it kind of it opens it up to those to that co as well it needs to be tailor-made I think if it's going to be driving outcomes good outcomes um, it needs to be tailor-made because yeah. we're all individual exactly exactly
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the same like I find even people who say a nonverbal or some other barrier like that the typical SLES just doesn't doesn't work so well mm-hmm. and we've we've got to find another way to do it and there absolutely is other ways to do it and i've even had people in the past where i've said to parents your your child absolutely can be employed mm-hmm. and they're shocked yep. because they'd always been told this person is non employable because of their disability. And um I go in and absolutely they're employable. We it's up to us, us. to find where they fit and
1: not the other way around. Exactly. A hundred percent true. And I have seen firsthand um how a person with a disability who's working does Possibly a better job than I would do of it because they are so they need to do a good job because they kind of have to show people they can do it. They do an exceptional job and we're very much conditioned in life. And I think it it flows over to just everybody. If you are constantly being kind of not told, but maybe not, you know, you're going to start to believe that it's about installing those. Yes, you can. If you want, you can with the right support and guidance. Yes, you absolutely can. And then they can and they will. So it's got a lot to do with the support system and what they are being told is is, is available because it's true what you say. If If you're constantly being you've got a disability, you cannot do this instead of you have a disability, but you've got a different ability. Let's see how we can do this. You could, there's so many opportunities, so many opportunities and um, it's, I think it's very exciting to be a part in this space because you could really make a positive difference, not just in the life of the person with a disability, but their whole family, their carers, their support workers. Um, it really can flow into a whole lot of positive things that, not just the the support you deliver to them on a day to day.
0: So our final question of the podcast is, in your ideal world, what would the future of the NDIS look like?
1: Oh, there's so many things. And I think starting feeble in the last couple of months... <laughs> I have had moments where I'm like, oh we joke, are oh, you joking me? Um so I think the thing that for me there's like I said, there's a couple of things. But the thing that comes to mind, and I suppose it comes from having multiple conversations with a lot of people at expos and at ev- at events, um, and on a lot of in a lot of spaces is the lack of funding for children in in anything eighteen and below. I look capacity building. Great. It doesn't always even uh, cover all the therapies required, but that core component is, I think, super important. And it takes me back to what I said initially in terms of implementing positive changes and opportunities for a person when they're young, because while therapy is super important, um, the social and community aspect of the, the support is very important because they were going to grow up and they need to be able to take their rightful place in society. So I think funding in that space is something that I've spoken to so many people and there's always like, I just don't have enough funding so we can't do this X, Y and Z. And I think that is something that in an ideal world the NDIS would look at and actually review and give appropriate funding based on the support needs of the participant, not because they're young and they go to school and they just need the odd therapy session here and there. They do need community access. They do need social community participation and just making it a bit more accessible and easier to navigate would be nice too um i've had a field day the last two months um and um yes i i i feel for people having to to start the access process on their own without a a brilliant support coordinator like yourself or a good support system at home because it's not easy it is not easy so streamline and um, um, client-centric funding, I think that's super important. It's, it's. I see very often that people just get funding. It's rolling over. Oh, is that fulfilling the purpose of the exercise to make sure that their supports are tailored to their support needs? Who knows? But, yeah, I would think that for me that would be a, a great start to enable younger people to get the support they need sooner rather than later in all aspects of their funding and their plan.
0: Yes. <laughs> this, this is... <laughs> <laughs> this is huge for me. I I feel like sort of like throwing my hands up, just about, you know. What I mean? Because
1: you're not the kids, only one, Hannah. <laughs> yeah.
0: the The funding for kids is. There are times when it's like, it is so so frustrating, and ah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm like, if one more person tells me it's parental responsibility, just no, it is not. Because parents of children who do not have disabilities do not have the extra stresses and difficulties that we have. And just go, like parental responsibility, shut
1: up. And you you need to, I mean, you know, again, it's just, it's bigger than just um, more funding. It's... um, the the saying happy wife happy life it's happy mom and dad happy kids happy household um it's so important it's so yes I feel for me that would be possibly my big tick in terms of just make sure that you when 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 you do when the planner sits there and they that they do the plan look at the support needs of the participant but mom and dad they need to work to earn a living. There's a lot of other things to take into consideration, but make sure they've got adequate funding because, yes, they go to school, but there's so much more than just therapy. And in some instances, there's not even enough for all the therapy they require. So it's I, I, I always say special kids get special parents because they do a ton and it should be commended for, yeah, for everything they do in that space.
0: Yeah, even as a support coordinator, I my heart breaks constantly for the kids and the parents because I know what it feels like. And I've been lucky a few times that I actually have been able to get a few people under 18 some decent core funding, mm. but it is a bigger struggle definitely for those in the under the early childhood. Yeah, so now yeah. now the under nines, what was the under sevens Mm-mm. is is even a bigger nightmare to get them any sort of funding. But definitely anyone under eighteen, it's it's just mind bogglingly difficult. And I just Yes, everything that you you have said it just it makes me so angry sometimes when I'm it like makes me
1: feel like you know powerless yeah. because aside from being a mom and aside from being there's a heap of other stuff that that needs to be taken care of and um, yeah I don't think that the support is always the funding is always available to enable that support to be provided to the person. so it would be great if that could be just. Accurate based on the actual support needs. Yes. Yes.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming
1: on the podcast. Oh, thank you. It was it was lovely to be here and thanks for having me. Yes. <laughs> Always lovely chatting to you.
0: And we'll talk to you next time.
1: Thank you, Hannah.
0: Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Please share with people you know. You can email us at what in the NDIS pod at gmail.com. To contact me, it's hannah at au, And to contact Sam, it's sam at consulting. Until next time, as the Green Brothers say, don't forget to be awesome.